Well, turn to our master text for today's teaching in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And uh, as you're turning there, I just want to say that I'm starting a new series today. And in this series, we're going to be talking about how to walk in God's divine favor, in a level of favor that are not experienced by the masses. Does that sound okay? All right. Praise God. And on that note, that's why I'm calling the, uh, the name of this teaching and the series Greater Grace, the secret to unusual divine favor. Wouldn't you like to learn how to walk in the divine favor of God? Praise God. So that's what we're going to be talking about today and then also in this series. But, you know, in order to get to that point where we're walking in the divine favor of God, an unusual level of it, we're going to have to be brutally honest with ourselves at times. We're going to have to agree to examine ourselves closely and say, as David did when he um, wrote in the book of Psalms, search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me. And that is the attitude that I think that we need to have as we approach this topic. Let me say this before we read our master text. If you and I will not approach this subject with that kind of honesty and transparency, then this is just going to be another useless religious exercise that's not going to bear a whole lot of fruit. But if we will approach this subject and God with that kind of transparency and honesty that I'm talking about today, then I believe that this teaching today and this series could have a multi-generational impact on your life and your family. So with that said, let's go ahead and read our master text. Hopefully you're there in 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to read the first six verses. Stand with me, if you will, and let's honor the reading of God's Word. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Praise God. Now, I want to break down that master text that we just read for a few minutes here and just kind of uh, just really dive, take a deep dive into that and really understand it. So in verse 5, it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So there's two things that uh, are compared in that verse, pride and uh, humble, okay, and resisting and giving grace to. So let's define what proud means. I think we all have a pretty good working understanding of pride or proud, but let's define it further today. So proud is having an inordinate self-esteem. 
possessing a high or unreasonable conceit of one's own excellence, either of body or mind. And we can contrast that with humble, which means inner lowliness, describing the person who depends on the Lord rather than self. It means being God-reliant rather than self-reliant. So that's a pretty good working understanding of proud versus humility. Now, paradoxically, while humility is a lowering of oneself, it always exalts a person eventually in God's economy. Okay? In other words, it puts a person in position to receive greater grace from God. In fact, a similar passage in James 4 is where the title of this series comes from. So let's read that real quick as well. It's on the screen for you. James 4, 6. But he gives greater grace. There it is. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we could conclude then that there are different measures of God's grace in his kingdom and among his people. Let me say that again. There are different measures or different levels of God's grace in his kingdom and among his people. Now, I want to give you the broader definition of grace on that note. Because we typically think of grace as unmerited favor. And that is a really good way to understand grace. But it's so much more than that. Grace is also an empowerer to help you to live a holy life. But let's also expand even beyond that. So grace, of course, is a generous, free, and totally undeserved gift. That's kind of our, our working understanding of grace, that unmerited favor, that undeserved uh, forgiveness or grace. It often describes the grace that leads to salvation and the forgiveness of sin. So here's a passage for you that uh, relates to that point. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And most of us have heard that or maybe even memorized that from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But grace is also divine help or assistance. Grace is divine help or assistance. Here's a passage that relates to that, Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So grace, once again, is divine help or assistance. It's also favor. Grace is divine favor. Here's a passage for that. In Genesis 6, 8, it says of Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Remember, God was about to destroy mankind uh, with a flood because he couldn't find anybody on the earth that uh, had any type of moral compass at all. Everybody was evil, corrupt, except for Noah and his family who found grace or favor in the eyes of God. Okay? So grace is also God's favor. He favors someone. Grace also refers to the inner working of godly character. The inner working of godly character. And this is what I was referring to a moment ago. Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, speak to that. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Look at the outcome of, of grace. It, reading on, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So that's where I said a few moments ago that grace is an empowerer to help you to live a godly life. What else is grace? It's also an ability. Grace is an ability. Let's look at the scriptures on that. Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So there are people who have been graced with certain abilities for the building up of the body of Christ. There are apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists. There's people with musical ability. There's people with you know, they've got a strong anointing or grace for evangelism, right? You've seen people like that. They, some people have a strong anointing or grace for children's ministry. And not everybody can handle that. But some people have a grace for that. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so grace is an ability. But when it comes to our master text in 1 Peter 5, the text there is referring to divine help and divine favor, and that's the emphasis that this series is going to revolve around today. God's divine help and divine favor. Okay. Now, in, again, the, in, in 1 Peter 5, 5, uh, the, the back half of that, 1 Peter 5, 5, B, I guess you could say, it says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, I'm going to break that down for you in the ancient languages because this is going to give you some additional insight on this. So <clears throat> that word resists in the English, is the uh, Greek word antitasomai. And it means to range in battle against, to set oneself against, to oppose intensely, to square off against, to reject the entire makeup of something. Now, I want to give you a little illustration to kind of drive that point home. One evening, Donna and I had dinner over at Tom and Gail Paso's house, and later in the evening, Tom and I went downstairs into his man cave to watch a little sumo wrestling. And that's a sport that Tom enjoys. He, he enjoys watching that, among others. And I'd never really watched sumo wrestling before that evening, and I was really fascinated at the techniques that these athletes used. So it wasn't all just about brute force. However, to be an effective sumo wrestler, those guys do have to have some girth because the heavier they are, the easier it is to resist their adversary. And I sort of picture that as I think about God resisting a person, I sort of picture a sumo wrestler squaring off, okay? That's not a battle you're going to win. So rather than God resisting you, we need to find out and discover how to get in the flow of God's favor. Wouldn't you agree with that? So let's look at the word grace for a moment in that passage and break it down. That comes from the Greek word uh, charis or charis, uh, which means grace or kindness. It also refers in the larger sense to God's favor Refer, refers to God freely extending himself, inclining himself to people because he is disposed to bless them. That's what grace refers to. Now, growing up as a football fan, I've learned that there are a lot of unsung heroes in the sport. You know, the glory most often goes to the men who handle the ball, right? The quarterback and the running back, those are the ones that 
tend to get most of the glory. But, you know, if a running back didn't have the offensive lineman up front blocking for him, he wouldn't get anywhere, right? They'd be shut down on every play without offensive linemen blocking for them. And I've often seen running backs run the ball down the field only because their offensive linemen opened up such big holes for them to run through, you could almost drive a Mack truck through them. So in other words, these running backs got their yardage by grace. You could say it that way. They got it by grace. Yes, they still had to run the ball, but the difference in gaining large chunks of yards and being stopped for a loss is predicated upon the quality of the blocking of their teammates. And that's similar to how God's favor works, you see. See, you can work and work, but without God's favor, you're not going to get very far. See, if a sumo wrestler is blocking your way, um, you're not going to gain a whole lot of ground. But when God's favor shows up, bam, things start happening. So with that as a backdrop, let's examine all of verse 5 in our master text for a second, not just the the back half. So I want to read this whole thing to you out of the Amplified Bible. So it says this, Likewise, you younger men of lesser rank and experience. So that's what younger means. It doesn't mean always younger in age. It means of lesser rank and experience. So you could be 50 years old, but be brand new in the Lord. This would refer to you. Uh, So you younger men of lesser rank and experience, be subject to your elders, seek their counsel, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Tie on the servant's apron. For God is opposed to the proud, the disdainful, the presumptuous, and he defeats them. But he gives grace to the humble. Hallelujah. Now, I want to give you another word out of the ancient languages with that word subject, the word that's been translated into the English as subject. And it's the word hupatasso. And it means to place under subjection, to obey, to subordinate oneself or to submit. Now, by the way, this is the same word, ladies, uh, that's used in Ephesians 5.22 when it says that wives are to submit to their husbands. Same word. However, let me just take a little bit of a side journey here for you husbands, because I don't want to bit anybody, any husbands, elbowing their wives right now and saying, see what I've been telling you? There's another side to this. Okay, in that same passage of Scripture, um, it says that husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands must love their wives. And that word love, by the way, since I'm giving you a lot of Greek words today, that word love is the Greek word agape. Agape. And it's not the romantic kind of love that it's referring to there. The one that motivates you by feelings. Goosebumps. That's not what it's talking about. It's the God kind of love that lays itself down for the other person. That's what agape love is. There's supposed to be a partnership in people's homes. There is a way to do things that will make your home life successful. If we just obey that, husbands and wives equally, it works beautifully. But that's a side note. You got that for free. Let's get back on track. Okay? So let's look at 1 Peter 5, 5 again with all that information in mind and with kind of the perspective that we just looked at 
from the Amplified Version, uh, I want to give you this uh, little offering of 1 Peter 5, 5. So I've embellished upon this a little bit, and my embellishments there are, or my additions are there in the, the, the brackets, the parentheses, and the, the bolder print is the actual scripture, so I don't want you to get confused. So you who are younger, those of lesser rank and experience, be subject to your elders, submit to them, and seek their counsel. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Meekness, it's referring to there, not rigid and demanding one's own way. For God is opposed to, he fights against, the proud, meaning the disdainful, the arrogant, the self-serving. But he gives grace, divine favor, assistance, and ability to the humble. Well, that being the case, we certainly do want to avoid being in the category of the proud and endeavor to be humble individuals so that we can flow in God's favor. Wouldn't you agree with that? Now, one of the major characteristics of true humility is that it is others-focused. And Jesus gave us an amazing example of that when he washed the disciples' feet. Now, in that time and place, let me just give you a little bit of background about uh, that time and place and why that scene would have been really profoundly impactful on the disciples. So let me just set this up for you. So during that time and place, there were no nice paved roads or sidewalks for people to walk on, and there was really no green grass to speak of to, to walk through because that was a very arid uh, dry desert type of environment there. So it was a lot of dirt roads and things of that nature, not a lot of green grass to walk through. And there were no cars, obviously, and it was mostly the rich who got around in horse-drawn carriages. So most people walked as their primary mode of travel. And a lot of people, probably most people in that time and place, wore sandals, not the sophisticated shoes that we have today. So all that to say, their feet got really grimy. Their feet got really grimy every day. So in that time and place, there were people who were designated as foot washers. So when you came into the home of a somewhat well-to-do person, there would be a servant there who would wash people's feet as they came in. And these were people who were considered perhaps the lowest people in that society. I mean, nobody wanted to be a foot washer, right? So when Jesus took a basin of water to wash his disciples' feet, what do you think they thought of? That the lowest position in society that Jesus is now assuming? For that reason, there was no small degree of shock among the disciples when they saw Jesus about to do that. And that's why the apostle Peter exclaimed, No, Lord, you will never wash my feet. See, he thought he was being pious, but... Jesus said famously back to him, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And that's when Peter relented. Okay? And when Jesus was done washing not just Peter's feet, but all the disciples' feet, he said these words, I have set before you an example so that you should do as I have done for you. You should do for others as I've done for you. Now, he's not specifically talking about washing people's feet. He's talking about serving them. That's what the example was. Lowering yourself so that nobody 
is lower than you so that you don't feel like that, well, that person's just, I'm above that person. I don't have to serve that person. No, Jesus, the maker of the universe, God in flesh, comes down and, and assumes the position of the lowest servant in that society to wash his disciples' feet, to give us an example for us to live by. We, too, should be serving each other, even if it's a grimy, undesirable job. That's what he was getting at. Okay? We don't always have to like have foot-washing ceremonies. I'm not against those. But foot-washing ceremonies in our time and place don't really serve a purpose. It's just, it's maybe a, a nice ceremony to say, I'm lowering myself to serve you. But most of us don't need foot-washing ceremonies because we have nice, sophisticated, closed-toed shoes and socks. Our feet don't get as grimy as theirs. The modern-day application of this is serving one another regardless of what the job is, regardless of how undesirable it might be, serving one another. That's the modern-day application. Now, going back to Jesus, I want you to notice the timing of this event. The Bible records in John 13 that Jesus knew that his time had come and that he was about to be betrayed. And it was during that time when he was anticipating his imminent arrest and crucifixion on the cross that he nevertheless set his sights on serving others and setting an example before us. Can you imagine the emotional turmoil that he must have been going through knowing that his, his crucifixion was just hours away? But he never stopped thinking about other people. Never stop serving other people. Well, what can we learn from that? Folks, when we're going through life's toughest times in our own personal lives, one way to successfully combat that inner turmoil and, and unrest is to simply stop thinking about only ourselves all the time and set our sights on the needs of others and serving them. And when we do that, there's something strange and, and wonderful that happens with us, and God's peace begins to replace that unrest. And the satisfaction of seeing others ministered to becomes our bread. And that's why Jesus once said, when he was ministering to the woman at the well, and they came back with, food, and he said, I have food that you know not of. What was he referring to? He was, was referring to the joy of ministering to that woman. It fed his soul. Ministering to that woman fed his soul. And when we turn our attention outwardly to the needs of others, our own souls get fed. Our own insecurities get fed. Our own unrest turns to rest. Our own anxiety can turn to peace when we just start thinking about the needs. Because everything's sowing and reaping, folks. Everything is sowing and reaping in God's kingdom. When you sow peace, when you sow help to others, you yourself get fed. You know, one of the things I love about being a pastor is the joy that I experience by ministering to someone else. It, it, I live for that. It feeds my soul. 
So let's turn our attention to what the book of Philippians says about the example that Jesus sets for us. So I'm just going to put this up on the screen here for you out of Philippians 2. Verse 3, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He goes on. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here it is. Who, existing in the form of God, God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what it's talking about. He existed in the form of God while he walked the earth. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And here's the result. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise God. Yeah, hallelujah. But the same that's true of Jesus is also true for us. Humility exalts a person. God also says in the scriptures, those who honor me, I will honor. Well, if humility is others focused then, then let me hear from you. If humility is others focused, what would pride be? Exactly. Self-focused, me focused. All the arrows go in. That's exactly right. Now, by the way, this is kind of a side note, but does this focus outwardly that we're talking about, um, does this mean that we shouldn't have any ambitions of our own? No, it just means that other people's ambitions and aspirations should be as much of a concern as our own. In other words, it's not all about me, okay? See, when we can learn to humble ourselves and see other people's needs as important as our own, then we'll really begin to discover what it means to be Christ-like. I feel like I should say that again. When, when we can really begin to see other people's needs as important as our own, then we will really begin to discover at that point what it means to be Christ-like, because that's what he did. This is just coming to me right now, but I want to give you an example of that kind of self-sacrificing that Jesus had. You know, one time he learned that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been beheaded in prison. And you can imagine the, the sadness that came over him as he heard that news. And, he, and the Bible records that he wanted to go to a solitary place and just be by himself for a while. So he set out in a boat to another region, and the crowds found out where he was going, and they headed there too, and by the time he got there, there was another crowd waiting for him. His desire was he wanted to be alone. That was his desire, because he was grieving. 
but his cousin, John the Baptist, had been beheaded. He just wanted to go to a solitary place and pray and be alone. But when he got to the place he was going to, another huge crowd was waiting to pull on him. And you know what he did? He ministered to them. He healed their sick. He ministered to them. And he gave of himself yet again. So when we can see other people's needs as important as our own, that's when we will really begin to discover what it means to be Christ-like. Yes, folks, the Christian life is paradoxical, meaning that the things that might appear in worldly wisdom to elevate you in life, which is self-promotion, are the very things that will eventually end in disappointment. And in many cases, total shipwreck. But the things that may appear to be self-demoting, like humbling yourself, are the very things that will propel you in life because the Bible tells us that God promises to humble the proud but exalt the humble. Praise God. And that is the way of the Master. So if we want to experience greater levels of God's grace and favor in our lives, then it will require that we recognize the areas of pride in our lives and seek to replace those areas of pride with humility. With humility. And the first step is simply to stop thinking about ourselves so much and begin to focus on the needs of others. And when you do that, your own needs are going to get met. Now, let me qualify something. Does this mean that if you're in, let's say, a, a difficult financial situation, as an example, that you shouldn't seek God's help and endeavor to better yourself? Of course not. God wants you to do well in life. So it's okay to seek God's help in your financial situations and endeavor to better yourself. That's fine. Or does it mean that if you have a health problem, you shouldn't seek uh, God's healing touch and get well? By no means. God wants you well. What I'm saying here is that too many people think only of themselves or mostly of themselves without much thought about how to be a blessing to others, to be a blessing to their church, or to be a blessing to their community. And folks, no one ever rose high in God's kingdom by living that way. Okay? And as a matter of fact, a lot of people have destroyed their lives by living that way. Samson in the Bible comes to mind. You know, most of Samson's life was devoted to what he wanted rather than what God wanted. And he ended up paying a heavy price for that, didn't he? As a matter of fact, he paid with his life. But those in the Bible, however, who were humble before God express that humility by fully submitting to him and holding nothing back. And that humility was also expressed, by the way, that humility before God was also expressed by humility before people and being the hands and feet of Jesus and serving them. I can't remember who said it, one of the Andrew Murray, I believe is who said this, that humility before God is best expressed in humility before people. Praise God. And I think one of the best modern day examples of that, by the way, of that kind of humility, uh, was Mother Teresa, who devoted her life to caring for the poor and sick. And she 
said something that really resonated with me, so let me read you her quote. I'll put it up on the screen for you. If you're humble, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor disgrace, because you know what you are. Now, what does that mean? It means that if you're truly humble, it won't matter what people say about you. See, their praise doesn't puff you up because you know who you really are. If you're being really honest with yourself, their praise won't puff you up because you know who you really are. And their insults don't bother you either because you know who you are in Christ. Isn't that a great perspective? So don't ever take to heart what people say about you, whether good or bad. Just keep your eyes on Jesus and you won't fall into the ditch on either side of the road. Well, I'm going to do a much deeper dive into this topic as the series unfolds. But for this teaching, I want to leave you with a closing scripture. And that's in Zechariah 4, 6, which says, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord. And that verse is related to John 15 where it says that without being connected to the vine of Jesus, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. See, whatever success that you and I have achieved in God's kingdom has not been the strength of your own flesh or the strength of your own intellect. It's been by God's power. God has empowered you. And whatever success that you and I achieve in the future in God's kingdom is going to come the same way. Not by your might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's the perspective that we all need to keep to stay humble. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Realize that you nor I are all that. Right? As this, What's the saying go that young kids use? You think you're all that in a bag of chips? Is that, that what they say? Yeah. Was that back in our day? Okay. But you know what I'm saying? That if you really want to be in the position to receive God's greater grace, you have to realize it's not all about you. Not all about your intellect. Not all about our strength. Not all about our savviness but by his spirit, says the Lord. So we need to humble ourselves before God and recognize that every good thing that we have comes from him. Amen? Amen. And as a response to that humility before God, we need to also, as the saying goes, pay it forward and allow the grace of God to flow through us toward other people and considering their needs as important as our own. That's one definition of what it means to be humble. Praise God. Stand with me if you will. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.